our brother Kel, his subject this morning, the Spirit of God and how God works in us. Thanks, brother Kel. Well, brothers and sisters, um, <clears throat> today's study is where things start to get interesting. This is an area which um, is an area of controversy, so with those few words, I perhaps might keep you awake. What I've endeavoured to do over the last three studies is to lay a fairly strong foundation, I think, and I know we've only touched on these things. We've introduced subjects that could be dealt with in a number of hours from each subject, but I know that you're all very familiar with the scriptures, so we've introduced these things to try and build up a grand theme of the purpose of God, because that's really what this subject's about. There's our three questions. We won't go through those just now. I'm sure you're familiar with them to this point. What we've seen is is that the scriptures teach us by comparison and contrast. We have, as we saw last class, where we dealt with the flesh and the spirit, we saw that there are the works of the flesh and there are the fruits of the spirit. These things are contrasted. And when the scripture talks about of, it has the idea of um, fatherhood, which is a very big theme in the Bible, a very big theme. We looked at last study the power of beliefs, and I know we only touched on this, but beliefs are hugely powerful. And therefore, it's our responsibility, it's our duty, as it were, to make sure that our beliefs are correctly and soundly founded upon the scripture. People will strap belts to themselves with explosives and go into shopping centres and kill themselves, and innocent men, women and children... Because of beliefs, wrong beliefs, they are hugely powerful. It's very important that we get our minds around that. We talked about sacrifice on this first study, and I talked about it being death of self. But that isn't the end of the story. Sacrifice has the idea of dedication and of trust in God. And it introduces the theme of new life, which is the objective that God's trying to bring us to. To dedicate ourselves to him and to his service to manifest his truth. And this life comes from God. And when we speak of the spirit, which we're going to speak of today, when we speak of the spirit, it's a controversial subject because it's been so mashed up by society at large. You know, there's tree spirits, people stand naked in forests and they hug trees and rocks because they're trying to access some sort of earth spirit. And that's just one aberration of it. Others buy rocks, crystals, which have got certain shapes, which are supposedly impart spiritual power. It's all nonsense, brothers and sisters. There's only one source of the spirit, and that's from God. And, that, and we're going to deal with that, and we're going to show what it is in the scriptures. I fear, and, and I'm guilty of this myself, that when we deal with this subject... We're generally expounding it, arguing against some, um, someone else's idea. And I think that's the wrong way to approach the scripture. We need to approach the scripture with the desire to understand what it's saying, not what it's not saying. Two different approaches to scripture. When we think of the spirit, we think of God and we think of accessing his unlimited power. And I hope we're going to show that today. So let's look at where we're up to. We're up to here, the Spirit of God, how God works. Those two subjects are tied very closely together and they will dovetail into the next one, 
um, another subject that we don't deal with um, very deeply at times. We're going to put up a model here, and it's a, this is a technical bit, and it's a generalisation, okay, it's a bit of a generalisation, but there is a model... Ah, what happened? I lost my model. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I forgot my notes. <laughs> John chapter 8, oh, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 6 to 10. I won't turn it up. You know the reference, and I suggest that we read Romans 8 more often because it has great spiritual power. I want you to read these words with me. It says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. What he's saying is that it's essentially important that we understand this subject. There's only two paths. There's either the Spirit or there's the flesh. Now, we shy away from these verses, and we shouldn't. They are fundamental to the teachings of the scriptures. You see, there's no middle road here. There's no middle road. The word is emphatic. We're either flesh and of the flesh and in the flesh or in the spirit and of the spirit. There's no middle ground. And as this is a subject that's often misunderstood and to assist us to understand the subject more clearly, we're going to look at these models that I talked about a little bit earlier on to try and get the technical bit down. Now, I don't, when I use models, I'm, trying, I'm taking a shortcut. It's not the right way to expound scripture. You should go to the scripture first, hear what it says, then develop the model. So, but we, gotta, we have to, because I've got a lot of material I want to get through like normal, and we're going to have to do this the other way around, and I apologise for that. Here's a model to show the main opinions of how the spirit works in people. There's a traditional model... And if you're a member of the Catholic Church or the old Presbyterian Church or some of those sort of you know, Lutheran churches, the, the, the very old Reformation-type churches or the Catholic Church before it, it's called the baptismal, I call it the baptismal regeneration model. They call it that as well somewhat. And what it is is that the ordained priest or minister has the power to impart the Holy Spirit and salvation provisionally through sprinkling. They call it baptism, but it's really sprinkling. And see, in this model, the power's with the priest or with the minister, and that's why he has to be ordained. You see, he somehow has the Holy Spirit and he passes it on. And it's the idea behind infant, infant sprinkling and state-based religions. Then there's the evangelical model, <coughs> which in this model, it's, it's the Holy Spirit direct model. And a person who calls upon the name of the Lord, and we looked at that in Romans 10 the other day, he is immediately saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, which then guides him in life and the choices that he makes. And in this sense, grace goes before belief. That's why they have this idea of provenient grace, which is what it means. Now, this idea was developed, I understand, by these fellows here, Whitfield or Whitefield, I can't quite work out how to pronounce his name, and Wesley... Um, the founder of Methodism, the Method 
church. What they call themselves? The Methodist Church. I was christened in one of those churches. Um, now this here is the model that's been adopted by the Pentecostals and all the Evangelicals, the Baptists, and of course the Uniting Church now blends these two models together, Presbyterian model and the um, Evangelical model. But there's the truth, brothers and sisters, and it's different. Now this model comes out of the scriptures, and I'm going to show this today, hopefully, is that the word of God is spoken, it's believed, it's received into good and honest hearts, it takes root, it brings forth fruit, and these fruits are seen in works. And by this means, God works in the hearts of people. And this is a work of the Spirit, working by faith and grace. In this model, the power of God is in the word believed. Now, I want to explore that a little bit, because I think we sometimes misunderstand what that means. Now, I've got a second model here, and, I, and as I said, I apologise for this. It is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it, it portrays the idea or the concept. So when we come to all those references in the New Testament that talk about the Spirit, you ought not to be afraid of them, but you ought to embrace them. And I put this together, and then there's a book by Brother Thomas um, called clerical theology unscriptural i've got some of these ideas from there i remember reading i haven't read it for a while but i remember reading it and saying wow he explained this beautifully beautiful concept god works by his holy spirit we're told that in the scriptures through which god reveals his will and his purpose the holy spirit is given to chosen people who must witness for the purpose that all might believe and be saved. Now, this is where the model is going to take us to. So the Spirit is received directly from God by prophets, by Christ, by the apostles, and by many, this great outpouring in the first century, many believers in the first century. And it was received in the first century primarily by the laying on of the apostles' hands. And the, and the recipient's primary task was to bear witness. They were given great power from God and their prime responsibility at the cost of their life often was to bear witness. The more they were given, the more was required of them. But the Spirit is also received indirectly. Very important to get this model right in your heads because it answers all the questions. By the majority of believers via the testimony of those witnesses. You see, that's the point of the Spirit in the first place, that they might bear witness. But the Spirit is received indirectly by the majority of believers via the testimony of the witness, that is the word received and believed, by those agents or those agents who received it first directly. That is, by the word of salvation, believed. Now, I believe, brothers and sisters, if you grasp that model, all those difficult references in the New Testament, all those things that we sort of, we're not quite sure, we substitute spirit for word and all that, I think we can see it very clearly for what it is. And we ought not, therefore, in my opinion, be afraid to use the term spirit, even though it's been mangled and mashed by false teachers and false concepts in society and in 
unfortunately, in many churches at large. Just how did the Spirit direct, and I have to go quickly, I see I'm already going too slowly. Just how did the Spirit direct model work in past ages? We sometimes imagine that it was usually or always God projecting his thoughts directly into the mind of chosen instruments or prophets. That's not true. It's not correct. Look at what, we'll just very quickly have a quick snapshot here. Abraham. God communicated to Abraham. And God spoke to Abraham through visions and the word. You can see in these references here. God spoke to him. These things, the word of the Lord came to him. He had a vision. And the vision was either something he saw or something he heard. Jacob, again, the same thing. He had a dream. And God spoke to him in a dream. Moses is a unique character in the scriptures because he's one like Christ. God spoke directly to him face to face. This Numbers 12 is a beautiful reference. This, of course, has got to do with the contention about who was superior, whether Miriam or Aaron or it was Moses. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, will make myself known unto him in a vision and speak unto him in a dream. But my, my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. From that, therefore, it's clear that God rarely spoke face to face with people. He mainly spoke via and communicated via visions and dreams. And you can see it in the prophets here. Jeremiah 1, you know, the word of the Lord came unto me. Isaiah, the vision of Isaiah. Daniel 7, Daniel dreamed a dream. The apostles received the gift of God directly. And they included dreams, visions, angelic presence, and the words spoken and the words of Jesus remembered. All these were manifestations of this same spirit given directly to people. Jesus himself, a man like Moses, I believe, but of course far superior, I believe God spoke to him in a unique way because he was given the spirit without measure. If the model outlined in the previous slides is correct, then perhaps, brothers and sisters, perhaps, this is my suggestion, we should reconsider some of the verses that we normally apply only to first century believers. In the following commonly read reference, why does Paul start off with what could be termed non-miraculous qualities and emphasise that they are by the same spirit? And of course, I think you know which reference I'm going to go to in Corinthians 12. Are they not simply diversities of the same spirit, albeit, albeit indirectly? Now, I've always attributed this to the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, but I don't think that that's right. I think when he says here that the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one to profit everyone, that what he means is, for by the one Spirit is given the word of wisdom to another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit to another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, healing by the same Spirit. It's the same Spirit at work, brothers and sisters, but it works differently. Some, all of us can manifest faith. 
It doesn't take the Holy Spirit supernaturally given directly from God to create faith. It's hearing the word of the Spirit that produces faith. I won't dwell there too long. We should have no doubt that we must have the Spirit of God. We saw that in the opening reference. These references, which I'm going to put up here in a second, tell us that. The real question is how and in what way and to what end do we have the Spirit in this age? In many contexts, the Spirit is received by hearing and believing the testimony of those whom God sent. Galatians 3, verse 2 and 3. This only would I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? One we looked at before, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man had not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. See how the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God are used interchangeably? They are conveying to us the same concepts. The Spirit has worked today and continues to work today, and I believe this is the point. The Scriptures inform us that the words spoken by God's chosen agents, or ambassadors, if that's the word you preferred, are in fact God's words being communicated. Although the word is received by our senses, our hearing, it's by the means, this is the important bit, it's by means of the ideas that are conveyed that God works. Now, I love this reference in 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2. It's one of my favourite references in the Bible. When Paul says to this, he says, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, so he came to Thessalonica and he preached, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And look what he says of it which effectually worketh in you that believe. You see, the word is the word of the Spirit. It's the word of God, and it has power to work in your life. And it's the same idea here in Colossians chapter 3. You put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now, you know where that idea comes from, don't you? It comes from Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image and likeness. He's pulling the ideas together. You see, God's at work and he's working through his spirit, which is directed or channeled, as it were, through the word. And he's creating people in his image and likeness to complete his purpose with the earth. And it's God who's at work in you, says Philippians, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if we throw up this other model we looked at before of inputs and outputs, I know it's a little bit scientific and perhaps a little bit narrow in many senses, this idea of choice is governed by will and choices are governed by our instincts. Sorry, choices are the exercise of will and choices are governed by our instincts and our beliefs and how important it is that our beliefs are truly, correctly founded in the things of God. And the word of God informs us that God revealed his will in many mean, by many means, sometimes directly by words and other times by visions and dreams. Nevertheless, the intention has always been the same. To convey knowledge and ideas that would affect change 
by creating faith and understanding and be shown in a transformed way of living in the lives of men and women. Now that, brothers and sisters, is the foundations of this subject. That's where it is. So when we come into the scriptures, we talk about the fruits of the spirit. The spirit must, be, must fill us. I know we use those words of the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be afraid of the way the scripture uses it. The spirit of God must fill us. It must work in us to create Christ in us, called in the scripture the inner man or the new man. And the reality of this work must be seen in the fruits of the spirit, what it produces. Because there's no fruit. The seeds are wrong. It's not of God. God's word must produce fruit. And they're clearly visible in our outward behaviour towards others. And it works by faith. And you can see it here, all these references. You can look at them yourself. That Christ might dwell in your hearts by faith. He's got the inner man here and he's got the work of the spirit. You see, it's one of the same. Look at these references in your leisure. Now, I've got another six or so slides, but I've had to pull them to the back of the um, study because there's spare slides because I just don't have time to go through them all. I need another hour and I don't think anyone's going to give me that today. Look, we shouldn't be confronted or afraid to use scriptural terms, and these are scriptural terms. Irrespective of how they've been misused, abused by those who call themselves Christians. But we should, and we must, this is the essential bit, we must understand what they mean and how and in what way they are applicable today. Look at these references. We've put these up a number of times. We'll put them up again. You are the temple of God and that don't you know this, that you, have, you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 and these others as well. This one down here intrigues me. 1 Corinthians 6. I think I, oh yeah. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which ye have of God and are not your own? Now I know that we normally, and I teach this myself, I teach first principles, we normally say the Holy Spirit was God's Spirit used on special occasions for salvation and God's Spirit is his general Spirit that he uses. Now that definition is generally correct, brothers and sisters, but it's not always correct. We've got to separate them together. God's Holy Spirit and his Spirit are one. They're one and the same thing. We ought not to be afraid to use these references, irrespective, as I said, how they're being abused and misused in society. Although we agree that all manifestations of the spirit are supernatural phenomena, that means, and what I mean by that is that they're from above, we must distinguish between the spirit, which is to be the possession of all believers in all ages, and the Holy Spirit gifts which definitely, most definitely, was a unique and powerful manifestation of the Spirit of God as recorded in the New Testament. There is a distinction, and it's an important one that we understand. Because if you claim to have the Holy Spirit direct from God and have his gifts, you stand as a prophet before God. And if you're wrong, if you're misrepresenting God, the judgments of God will come upon you. And that's what, the, that's what God warns of in the law and he shows in the, in whole, all through the prophets that God will stand against you if you misuse him, if you misrepresent him and claim to have his spirit. 
he will bring judgment upon you because the thing, the greatest sin you can sin against God is to misrepresent him, to pretend that you're speaking for him when you're not. The Holy Spirit gifts as described in the New Testament scripture, I'll just cover this off so you make sure I am still orthodox, was clearly an infusion or filling of divine power and seems to be on a larger scale than in previous ages because the way... John the Baptist and others in the, in the New Testament speak about it. It's, it's, a, it's a unique and, as it were, a greater filling of the Spirit. It enabled its possessors to miraculously heal people, to speak in languages they hadn't learned, to do miraculous things. And it clearly, in, clearly indicated that the possessors of this power were marked out by God as authentic representatives of God. That's the point of the Holy Spirit gift. They were authentic that people would believe the testimony or the words. Therefore, their words and their testimony could be trusted. The outworking of the Spirit was powerful and beyond all doubt, and even their enemies could not gainsay what was done. It's nothing like the claimants today. Nothing at all. Now, there's interesting scriptures that are rested, and I'm just going to deal with one of them, because I want to move fairly quickly here. Titus chapter 3, we sometimes stumble at. He says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, sometimes we struggle with that reference. We ought not. Here's another one we looked at before. No, we didn't look at this part of it. As such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Very similar context, very similar ideas being portrayed. You know the one in Ephesians 5? That he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it, that's his bride, the, the, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, with the washing of water by the word. And again, in John 15, Jesus says, you are clean through the words which I've spoken to you. Now, this one here, these concepts come out of the Old Testament. I don't have the time to turn up the references, but I'll put it up on the slide. And I'd like you to look at it in your own time. It's got a beautiful history. This idea of cleansing and sprinkling and clean water and a new spirit and within comes from this section here of Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27. Go back and look at it. It's talking about God's future work with Israel when he takes away their heart of flesh, their heart of stone, takes away their carnal ignorance and their rebellion against him and he changes them. He's not talking about the giving of the whole, the power of the Holy Spirit gift as the apostles, but the change in the heart of these people when he changes their heart of stone. These references are not speaking about the miraculous gifts, but about the gift of God in revealing himself and giving man divine knowledge. Now, we're going to go into this in just a moment. 
the idea of divine knowledge through which God develops in mankind the mind or spirit of God and that of his son. Remember Paul's comment here, Romans 8 verse 9. Now if any man had not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, you'll, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's very important, brothers and sisters, we get our mind around this. Two more references, and I'm about four minutes slower than I hope to be. Walking in the spirit basically means walking in the counsel of the spirit of God. That is, according to God's revealed will. It also means walking in units of life. We've already looked at this as if we already had eternal life. As I said, I'll be a little bit controversial here. As if we already have eternal life. That's what units of life is. It's not, it's not the life that Jesus walked when he walked the earth. As exemplary it is, it's the, walk, the life that Jesus now has as a resurrected, immortalized person. That's the life that we are now being risen with Christ are to manifest. Romans 6 verse 4, I know you're familiar with this very well. We should walk in units of life. That's the idea here. We're dead. We're freed from sin, he says in Romans chapter 6. If we believe we, we are dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Paul in Galatians 2, it's been mentioned a number of times in this week. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I, I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I'm going to suggest to you that newness of life is eternal life. We come to those references in 1 John and we misread them, brothers and sisters, because what we do is we study them to try and work out what they don't mean because of the way they've been abused. Eternal life is mentioned six times in John's epistle. These things have I written unto you that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. And that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. We misunderstand these references, brothers and sisters, when we look at them back the front. The wording is used, as I said, six times in John's letters, and I suggest you go and look at every one of those and have a think about what they're saying. Eternal life here relates to the type of life we should now live. As dead to sin, as alive to righteousness, as in the resurrected Christ. It involves walking in the light of the Spirit of God, according to, according to God's counsel, just as Christ did and just as Christ does. It also in my, it involves having the spirit or mind of Christ. Look how it's used in 1 John chapter 1. It's very interesting. Very first time it's used. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. And our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which is with the Father, was manifest unto us. He's talking, brothers and sisters, about the type of life we should live. 
Now, I'll explain this in a second. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Whosoever hates his brother is a murder, murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life dwelling in him. You see, he's not talking in this sense, in the sense of promise, but in the sense of manifestation. So we should now live as free from the law of sin and death. As dead to sin, but alive to God. This is the freedom and life that we have. This is the liberty of newness of life. In the future, at Christ's return, this way of thinking, and we're talking about thinking here, eternal life, will be made a physical reality in our beings, in our bodies. We will be changed, be sharers in divine nature. Don't think that I'm telling you that You've got eternal life now, and when you die, you're going to float off in a cloud or go to heaven or anything like that. I don't suggest that at all. But these references speak about a way of thinking. A person totally transformed by the power of faith and the working of God in them that they become a new person, one like and identified with the resurrected Christ. Now, I'm about five minutes behind now, so pardon me for this. How do you, I'm just going to change tact here for a moment. How do you perceive God? Historically, religious art has often captured man's thoughts of God. Do we think of God like this? Big man. Here's Zeus here. Okay, he's sort of like about my size, but maybe as big as Goliath. Or go to Christian art, a big angry man. There he is there. And he's obviously here. I think this, this art here, I think he's throwing Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Do you perceive God like that? To perceive has the idea of seeing something through the senses and to conceive has the idea of seeing something through the mind. But I'm not going to go into those words. We're just going to use the word perceive because the Bible uses those words, but it's speaking not about physical sight but spiritual sight. And it's very important that we get this. So in the Bible, God introduces himself. It's our, is our perception of God affected by our cultural, religious background, upbringing, education, experiences, personal or peer group prejudices? God calls upon us to abandon all these things, any trust in these things, and he wants us to hear him and to know him. This is the message of the Bible throughout it. Do we really know who God is? Do we hear God speaking to us in his word? Do we really believe his testimony, his word, his revelation? Can we conceive, and this is the point, can we conceive of a being, and if that being is even the right word, I'm not sure, of God's unlimited power, wisdom and knowledge? I know we speak about these things, we quote the Psalms and other places, but can we really conceive of it? The scripture says that God spoke and it was done. He sent forth his spirit, they were created do we believe that God's able to do this? That he's done it? Do we understand the significance of his name, Yahweh, of his familiar title of Father? Do we believe we'll be part of the fulfilment of this purpose? Or is it just theoretical? The scriptures tell us that all originally knew God, but most drifted away from his presence. Although in many of their traditions and customs and writings, they sort of 
you can see the source of their origin back with God, but it's sort of corrupted, which is what man tends to do. Many thinkers have tried to conceive of God using reason and philosophy, but they can't find him. They couldn't find him. They could only see his works. This is a beautiful conversation, if you look at it from this perspective, when Paul came to Athens. He introduced God to them. He said that this is the one who you ignorantly worship on this altar to the unknown God, and that he was the one who made all things in the world, and he gives to all life and breath and all things. And Paul says he's not far from every one of them. And he uses the terminology of someone who's blind. They, they grope after him, they reach after him, but they can't find him. He's just out of their distance. And he remained mainly unknown. Paul goes on to say in Corinthians, he says, There be gods many and lords many, but to us there be one God, the Father, out of whom are all things, and we of him and one Lord Jesus Christ by or dire, through whom are all things, and we by him. Scripturally speaking, brothers and sisters, it's clear that God cannot be found by the application of reason, science, traditional religion. It has to be by revelation. The Bible tells us that God has revealed himself as the one who is in infinite orders of magnitude, larger, wiser, more powerful than anyone, anything, everything that we can conceive. When we grasp this, we only begin to grasp the magnitude of God. Very important, brothers and sisters, we see this. It's the finiteness of our own beings, our material existence, our experiences, mortality and sin, that limits our perceptions of God. Which is why men in ignorance so often made idols to represent God. They tried to put God into some sort of box that they could comprehend because they're using their carnal senses to try and interpret God. We can't do that. It's also why God says here, Deuteronomy 4, verse 12, And Yahweh spoke unto you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard the voice of God, but you saw no similitude. You only heard a voice. God would not reveal his physical presence to them. Why? Because human thinking has a tendency towards idolatry. We struggle with the concept of an infinite God who cannot be categorised or limited by our finite minds. You know, I heard a debate, a very prominent science, I won't tell you who he is, I'm sure you probably know, arguing with someone about God. And he says, if God exists, who made him? I mean, how stupid is that? You see, that's what the material mind does. He can only sense things through his senses. Everything has to have a beginning and an end. Everything in the material world that we're experienced with is. And here's God, who is infinite and knows no beginning or end, trying to reveal himself to you and me, to humanity. And he's trying to change the way we think so we can understand him, so we can perceive him, so we can reach up to him. He says to Moses, Thou canst not see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. Yet we can understand this in the contrast with Jesus when it says here in John 8, verse 19. They said to him, Where is thy father? And Jesus says to them, You neither know me nor my father, for if you had known me, you should have known my father also. 
And in the future, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Jesus will reveal God in all his fullness to him, and we will see as we've never seen before. Along with believers in ancient times, we should constantly remind ourselves of the greatness of God and therefore of his great mercy and appreciate what he's given to us in his word. Yet they hadn't understood. Yet God revealed himself. Haven't you known? Haven't you heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the world? And Solomon, as he opened up his temple, he says, but God, will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. But God, we're told in the scriptures, wants us to know him. This is the miraculous thing, brothers and sisters. Here's this God of infinite power, being. And he wants us to know him. He's invited us to. God's word states that although God has revealed his character, his will, his purpose, his men have not hearkened to his voice. They haven't understood. He says of Israel, I'm Yahweh and there's none else. There's no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. And in the New Testament, we find the same testimony. The light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is a great subject, brothers and sisters, and we could spend, as I said, on this one alone at least an hour or two, perhaps a week. It's a magnificent subject. But here's the creator of heaven and earth. There's all his infinite power, and he wants us to know him. And men don't know him. They can't lift their minds above the carnal environment they find themselves in. To know and understand Christ is to know and understand God. To see Christ is to see God. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ. You know, and as the brother said earlier in previous times, in a beautiful way, God, Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than just an ordinary man. He is the Son of God. Like no other. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. As the brother said this morning, Jesus wrote nothing. His life was the testimony. John 14, verse 7, this beautiful reference here. If you had known me, you should have known my Father. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. You know who started this conversation? Here? Thomas. And you know what Thomas, between that record in John chapter 20, when Thomas didn't get it, didn't understand it, and he's the one who denied Christ, denied that he was raised from the dead, and when he sees the risen Christ, I think he quotes these words. My Lord and my God. You see, he was looking at Christ and he was seeing exactly what Jesus was talking about. He didn't get it back here, but he got it when he saw the resurrected Christ. God wants us to truly know him. Our life depends upon it. God wants weak, mortal man to lift their minds and to see, to perceive God. 
God as he really is and not as our carnal senses might limit him. That's what John 17 verse 3 is about. It's not, I know we use it in arguments with those who believe the Trinity and it's nothing wrong with that, but it really means something different. This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent to know God. This infinite God has revealed himself to us and has also shown us his character and his ways. Exodus 34, the life of Jesus Christ. He is definitely, brothers and sisters, and although we paint this great picture of God, he's definitely for us. Must never be in doubt. These references here, we'll talk about this in Romans chapter 8 again, this beautiful chapter that we don't read often enough. If God be for us, who can be against us? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He goes on here to talk about the assurance of the heart. God has revealed to us his way to us by his spirit, which we've received. We should not be afraid to use words like this. They are overwhelmingly scripturally respective of how they've been misused. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 to 13, lovely words. God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us. We've seen that God has revealed to us in the scriptures the great divide that exists between flesh and spirit. The flesh represents everything that is natural and earthy. It is from below and is enshrined in the wisdom of this world with its limited vision. The spirit, on the other hand, represents everything that is supernatural. And I'm using it in contrast to the concept of natural because if the spirit isn't supernatural, it's natural and it's of the world. It is supernatural. It's of God. It's from above. It originates from God. It includes God's word and all his ministrations. The influence of the spirit of God is designed to lift our thinking, our minds and our vision above what they naturally default to. And to see the things through God's eyes so that we might truly know God. To enable this, God has revealed himself and his ways that we might grasp the enormity of his power and wisdom. That God knows no limits. There is no limits with God. He does this so that we might align ourselves with him and his declared purpose. Knowing that God moves us to another realm of existence and perception. Understanding and knowing God and the faith it produces in us enables us to grasp these things 
and to then see God and his ways in stark contrast to man's limited wisdom and vision. When we truly see it this way, when you see the contrast, when you see the comparison, we experience the sight that faith brings. And we're going to deal with that next time because there are references in the scripture, brothers and sisters, that we don't look at and we don't look at it in this way. I love this one in Hebrews 11 of Moses. It says that a God, Moses couldn't see God. God said, no man can see my face and live. And yet it says of Moses, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We're going to show you how that, that form of language is used in the scripture in a number of times. It's the idea of seeing, brothers and sisters, not with the eye of flesh, but with the eye of faith. And this is the other side of faith that we want to talk about. Being able to see... God and his ways and his hand at work. Here's an overview, just so you know that I still do believe it the way we normally believe it. This is another model. The word of God gives us knowledge of God and of his will and purpose. The word comes forth. It produces in us faith. We hear the word, we believe the testimony. We are fully persuaded by the word. We believe God. It produces in us, brothers and sisters, a change. Knowledge and faith work in us to change our thinking and our behaviour to be like Christ's. And in the end, in the final day, as Titus says, says in other places, the body will be changed to be like Christ's. We will become sharers in the divine nature. God will match a body to the mind that's being created in this life. And that's what it means to be born of the Spirit. It is, brothers and sisters, an overwhelmingly beautiful concept. What spirit are we of? I won't go through this because he's about to ring the bell again on me. Luke chapter 9. Jesus was coming up to Jerusalem. He was going to go through Samaria. And the disciples say to him, Well, let's bring fire down on these people. You know, quoting the Old Testament and Elijah. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You see, that's a challenge, brothers and sisters. What spirit are we of? What spirit's moving you? What causes you to make the decisions, to think the way you think, to do the things you do? That's a challenge that we come, that comes to us. We've got to make sure that we use scripture correctly and we get the spirit that's in this word and we give it full power. Now, we're going to take from here and we're going to sort of leap forward, hopefully, in the next study, if I can uh, keep it all together and get it together. I've got maybe three less slides next time, so maybe I'll get to the end. I'm sorry, but thank you very much.